When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart, and for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans. I'll give it a rest. You're under new management. It's Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast now. Hello and welcome to our latest podcast. And and, uh, I'm here, I'm Peter Hart, I'm with lovely Gary Bain, who's as voluptuous as ever. He's slightly more voluptuous than he used to be, but there you go. Uh, And uh, what are we doing today, Gary? It's a a bit of a special for me. Today, it's a special episode on one man... And that man is Manfred von Richthofen, known otherwise as the Red Baron. Ooh, is he evil? No. <laughs> I think a lot. Uh, there's a song about him, isn't there? There's it? a number of songs about him. And uh, there was a Snoopy character based upon him, I think, I recall. I think Snoopy was the one who killed him. Anyway, should we sing the song just to get rid of half our listeners? Yeah, Okay. Bugger the listeners, as as, uh, as Matt used to say. <laughs> 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 or more. The bloody red bag was <laughs> the score. 80 men died trying to end that spree of that bloody red baron of Germany. Right, if we got anybody left, uh, when was he born, Pete? Uh, well, he was born on the 2nd of May, 1892. Uh, 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 he's the son of an aristocratic Prussian family. Uh, so he is probably, uh, he's a real baron, if you know what I mean. Uh, and he grew up with a taste for hunting. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, he started his military service as an officer cadet when he was 11. 11? <laughs> And uh, progressed through a somewhat lengthy and rather strict training before he was commissioned into the cavalry in 1912. Uh, He served on both Eastern and Western fronts at the start of the war, uh, but uh, he felt that the trench warfare was unexciting. (laughs) (laughs) Be exciting enough for me, I think. And in May 1915, he got a transfer into the German Air Service. now, uh, how do you think he started? Uh, do you think he just leapt into a plane and took off? Yeah, of course. They all did at that time, didn't they? Just jumped in, off they went and trying an error. We've got our podcast on Graham Donald showed that some of them did. <laughs> 
Now, first he was an observer, but he, he had a chance meeting with uh, that, that, that supremely brilliant ace, Oswald Balka, uh, and that inspired him to learn to fly, uh, uh, which he went through the normal flying training course and uh, proved himself uh, a competent and aggressive pilot. We're not doing his early background because I don't know much about it. Uh, do you know much about his early flying career? Oh, I know loads, but we haven't got time. Oh, okay, great. Right. <laughs> and he joined. Uh, he joined. Uh, he, he selected for Balkas Jasta Two, which was uh, forming at Bert, Bert, Bertincourt, uh, and he joined on first September nineteen sixteen. How do you think Balka was with it with with young pilots that he was well, recruiting? He was a bit of a tutor, wasn't he? He wasn't just with uh, Richtofen. Uh, he he was known for uh, being a bit of a a, a sort of. Uh, person to look up to for all these young protégés uh, and he taught them the real basics of, of aerial warfare he was very the very dicta. he was very meticulous yes the dicta uh, which uh, which we'll come into later because well, it, it's the same as Richtofen's dicta surprisingly so we don't want to go through it twice but he uh, Richtofen was taught almost everything over that month or two uh, that they had together in the, in the Jaster. Now, uh, so what was uh, Richtofen's first victory? Well, it occurs on the 17th of September. The fighting in the air had boiled up after the uh, Battle of Flares Corselet had started uh, and uh, uh, on the 15th of September. And on the 17th of September, Richtofen shoots down an FE-2B crewed by a veteran's uh, Le- Lieutenant Lionel Morris and, and uh, T- Tom Reese. Uh, there's a book about this which... Uh, I still haven't reviewed, uh, which I recommend. If you just look up for it, you'll find it. Now, they have no chance, these two lads. They're veterans. They had actually killed. They had shot down planes themselves. They're not raw. Uh, but there is somebody who's raw. Who's that? It's Richtofen. He, I mean, the, didn't know his arse or his elbow would be uh, would be the usual expression that you'd use. Yeah, but we've had this discussion before, haven't we, about uh, you describe it as a roller coaster. How there's a roller coaster of advances in technology or tactics that put one side in the ascendancy, and uh, he his albatross was totally, totally outclassing the FE two B at that point. Now you've got a quote you're going to read. So this is Lautenant Manfred von Richter, just a two. Uh, give vein to your inner Richtofen. My opponent had apparently lost sight of me. Instead of twisting and turning, he flew straight along. In a fraction of a second, I was at his back with my excellent machine. I gave a short burst of shots with my machine gun. I had gone so close that I was afraid I might dash into the Englishman. Suddenly, I nearly yelled with joy, for the propeller of the enemy machine had stopped turning. The English machine was swinging curiously to and fro. Probably something had happened to the pilot. The observer was no longer visible. Now, these quotes are taken from the Red Air Fighter. Now, I want to make it quite clear that this is a uh, ghosted book. Uh, but I think the essence of Richtofen still shines through. He, I mean, the ghostwriter will have taken what Richtofen said to him and, and put it into it into German. <laughs> and it's then translated into English. So we're a fair away from Richtofen's original words, but it's all we've got. He was on his way to being, well, he would be the biggest scourge of the Royal Flying Corps. Uh, the Albatross is better than any Allied scout then flying on the Western Front. And I always think it's funny, we are the Albatross D1. I tell you, it's a curse on the House of Heart. And, and the Albatross D2 arrives. 
before we've the before the, the Royal Fly Coach got any chance to do anything. But there is one silver lining in October. One one little ray of sunshine for the Royal Fly Coach. What's that, Gary? Well, it's the accidental death of Oswald Bolker. Uh, he crashes in midair on the twenty eighth of October, nineteen sixteen. Yeah, but in one sense, his work was done, wasn't it? Because uh, he's only twenty five. I. These guys are so young, and you know, you think of Bolker as the old master, <laughs> the old master. But but he's twenty five, uh, an age that uh, will will its relevance will become. But it later. wasn't just Richthofen, was it? The whole of Jester Two had learnt their uh, their craft from Bolker by this stage. They were good. Yeah, and, and Rick Richthofen had already shot down six claimed aircraft by this time, and he ta- in a way he will take on the mantle of Bolker. Now, one of Richthofen's greatest battles occurs on, uh, well, most famous rather than greatest, I suspect, occurs on the 23rd of November, November 1916, when he encounters the British ace, uh, Major Lano Hawker, uh, who was a Victor a VC, uh, who was flying a DH-2. Now, you've looked up a bit about uh, Hawker. He's one of my faves. I think you like him as well. Yeah, I mean, he, he got his VC for shooting down, I think, three aircraft uh, in succession over Eeps, over the Langemark area, I think it was, in July 19. 19- 1915. And at that stage, he'd had seven victories, which at that stage of the war made him an ace. Um, and he is one of our favourites, Pete, because he had issued an order <laughs> of, 24 squadron, to 24 yeah. Squadron, which was, Pete, attack everything. Yeah, no misunderstanding that. Very succinct. And uh, he, he was also, as a major, he wasn't really supposed to fly. fly. Now, this was honoured in the disobedience if, if you like, rather than anything else. But what I like about Hawker was he used to fly, when, when, when pilots were sweating on leave, you know what I mean, they, they were just nervous because they, they wanted to go home and see the missus or go and see the girlfriend or the dog or whatever they wanted to see. And uh, he'd fly for them. He was a brave man, Hawker. He probably flew more than anybody else as a result. Anyway, he's up on the 23rd of November. He gets separated from uh, from the rest of his uh, his patrol, and he encounters Richtofen. Now, all he's got in the DH-2 to match the Albatross D-1 is that he can turn round and round in circles, in, in narrower circles than the Albatross could manage. But what does that benefit compared to a, a DH-2 single Lewis gun with how many rounds in a, panne- in a, a drum? Oh, somewhere between 42 and 47, I think, Pete. According to me. Yeah. <laughs> Shut up. But it, 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 I mean, the point you're making is that the Lewis gun's totally inadequate when compared to the, the belt-fed twin German Spandau. Yeah. Dagger, dagger, dagger. And I mean dagger, dagger, dagger. Anyway, uh, here we are. We have Rick Doffen again. And it, I'm afraid it's him that tells the story of the combat. This is very much an edited down version. The circles which we made round one another were so narrow that their diameter was probably no more than 250 or 300 feet. I had time to take a good look at my opponent. If he had not had his cap on, I would have noticed what kind of a face he was making. (laughs) When he had come down to about 300 feet, he tried to escape by flying in a zigzag course, which makes it difficult for an observer on the ground to shoot. That was my most favourable moment. I followed him at an altitude of from 250 to 150 feet, firing all the time. The Englishman could not help falling. Now, the DH-2s, a lot of the aircraft the British had flown so successfully in the Somme, it was a success, see our podcast about it, uh, but they'd had their day. Uh, but there was nothing at the time ready to replace them. 
Now, uh, January, late January 1917, Richtofen's posted to take command of Jaster 11. Uh, they were near D- Dwy. He, he's not pleased. Uh, why do you think he's not pleased to be sent from his uh, squadron? Well, because he, he started from scratch again where, with a squadron who at that time had not really had any success at all. They hadn't shot anyone down. That's right. Uh, the, uh, but but they couldn't have got a better teacher and leader. And, and he, he was imbued imbued, Gary, with the spirit of uh, Oswald Bolker and his dicta. Uh, he was also flying, although not for long, the Albatross D3. I always love this. This is where the uh, it's just the, the Germans have got D1 and D2 Albatross. Brilliant. D3, they think, well, I like the look of that, uh, that, that the wing shape of the Newport. We'll copy it. So they copied it and the wings kept flying off. <laughs> <laughs> Richtofen doesn't fly that one for long. Anyway, he, he also, Richtofen does something to mark himself out, and this is part of the legend of the Red Baron. What does he do, Gary? Well, you're giving it away there, Pete. He decides to adopt an, an, an all-red paint scheme. Now, this this is deliberate. It's to mark himself out in the air and to, to thereby strike fear into his enemies. And it was the beginning of the enduring legend of the Red Baron. So, like, it's trailing his coat across across the skies uh, in a, in a pub uh, conflict of which he must be a, a, an aficionado. Yes, and it doesn't take long for Richtofen to get a grip and to to show the way forward to his new Jaster Eleven. He leads from the front, and his score starts to mount. And we can't go through every one of the eighty or so he shoots down, uh, eighty or less, just less. But. Uh, uh, on 24th of January, there's a sort of typical one. There's seven FE-2Bs. Now, you know the FE-2B. We've talked about them before. Two-seater, pusher. Very difficult to shoot down. Very tough machine. Very useful. Has a long career throughout the war. Ended up as a night bomber. And they were two of them were equipped with uh, input cameras. And they were to take the photographs of Vimy Ridge. Why, why would they be photographing Vimy Ridge in January 1917? Well, because we've said this before. The importance of aircraft in support of uh, the troops on the ground. Either in defence or in this case in attack. You know, it saves lives. What are we getting ready for? Is it the Battle of Arras? It's the Battle of Arras. In April. So they're photographing on a daily basis and they have to get the photos. So uh, Captain Oscar Gregg is with his observer, Lieutenant John McLennan. And they're, they're uh, piloting the uh, one of the FE-2Bs that's going to take the photographs. Now, they start their run and the, the two are completely engrossed in trying to get this sort of tight mosaic structure. Now, by mosaic, I mean that so each square of each photograph just slightly overlaps so that when you get back to base, you've got a complete map of the trenches. Uh, but it's not easy. It takes a lot of concentration, doesn't it? Well, it's not only uh, concentration, Pete. I want people to listen to the description that uh, Oscar Gregg gives of, of how he's standing and what he's doing. Fair enough, and also remember that the escort. Now, the, there's five, there are escort. There are there are five escorts, but where are they? It's difficult to judge how close. If they're close, then they're part of the formation. If they're far away, then they're far away. <laughs> and this time they get it wrong. So this is listen to this. This is Captain Oscar Gregg. I was standing uh, up on the radar bar, looking from map to the ground, getting the machine in exactly the right position and keeping it on an even keel, the camera being a fixed one. The observer was looking through the camera sights and was just beginning to take the exposure. So my point there is it starts with 
I was standing up on the rudder bar. And he's looking from the map to the ground to get in exactly the right position. Does that mean he's looking over his shoulder to see if Richthofen nor right. anybody else is behind? No. They're completely reliant on the escort, aren't they? And and the uh, observers standing in the front cockpit and looking over and into the camera. Now, the, the escorts drifted away, and at the moment of maximum advantage, as you would expect, Richthofen strikes. And this is Captain Oscar Gregg, also 25 squadron, of course. What what does Oscar Gregg say? Oh, it's me again. <laughs> I, I, I tell you, it's a curse on the House of Heart. <laughs> I heard a machine gun and saw several bullet holes appear in the left wing. I turned to the right in a steep bank, nearly upsetting my observer. <laughs> I'd have been bloody upset. <laughs> Furious, <laughs> hoping to get the enemy in front of me and also to get back to my escort. But on the completion of half a circle, the enemy fired another burst from the right side, putting the engine out of action and hitting me in the right ankle and knocking the foot off the rudder bar. So this, this is severely impacting his ability to control the aircraft. And... I wouldn't like a bullet hitting me in the right ankle. I'd probably make somewhat more fuss about it, wouldn't you? It must have been a tremendous shock, wasn't it? Uh, just, uh, it, uh, it uh, just a few shattering moments. And, and, and this is what happens to John McLennan. <laughs> and it's going to be you. I was actually taking photographs when a burst of machine gun fire from behind notified the attack. I looked round and perceived a red enemy machine diving away. In the first attack, he shot through both oil and petrol tanks and splintered the propeller. So, uh, <laughs> put out the engine, hit the oil and petrol tanks, splintered the propeller and hit the pilot. Yeah, it's not going well for them, is it? In the first uh, attack. In the first attack. Now, Richthofen had learned that the FE-2B was all but defenseless if you came at it from be- be- below and behind. The observer could stand up and shoot over the top wing. But he can't shoot below and behind. So Captain Oscar Gregg says, I continued in circles, endeavouring to get a sight of the enemy. But he succeeded in keeping below and behind me. I saw several tracer bullets pass through the instrument port between me and my observer. The firing stopped and we made for the lines. But at this turn, the observer pointed behind the machine, indicating another attack. A second later, a small scarlet biplane passed over us and went away to the right. <laughs> so they've got a useless engine. They drifted out of the sky, rigged off on their tail. I, I think they've had it. I, I, how come? Are these voices from heaven? <laughs> the machine could only glide and the manoeuvrability was greatly impaired through lack of any engine power. Von Richthofen attacked all the way down till the machine was but a few hundred feet from the ground. He attacked each time from below and behind, in which position we were unable to return fire. So there they are. In in actual fact, they do manage to get down and they destroy their aircraft, but they haven't taken the photograph. So another mission would have to be flown. Now, it, it, that's what happens. Uh, Richthofen has, has spotted his wing weakness. He, he finds his uh, airplane suffering in that combat. He has to, in fact, he crashed lands. And he, he switched to the Halberstadt D2 scout for a while. Um, and uh, anyway, throughout March and, and into April, that April becomes known as Bloody April because the germ. What, why? Why is it called Bloody April? What are the ger- what, what are the Brit- What are the two air forces doing? Well, German air forces trying to prevent the British Army cooperation aircraft from carrying out their duties, while as far as possible protecting their own reconnaissance aircraft. And, and of course, it's the vice versa of the British scout. Um, now, 
there is something that we need to point out here. Uh, I mean, in, when you read accounts of the time, you often hear that the Germans outnumber the British. Is this true? No. They've got superior aircraft, um, but they themselves were, were badly outnumbered. And they had to uh, adopt a cautious defensive posture, which allowed them to concentrate their numbers and fight only in the circumstances that they considered to be to their advantage. So when there's more Germans, it's because they've concentrated their powers to hit a particular target. Uh, it's, it's, it's crucial that they don't get shot down because they, they can't afford to be shot down because for their country, not just for themselves. Me and you would be thinking of ourselves, but they're thinking that we are a valuable resource. There's not many of us. We've got to, we've got to be careful. Um, can you remove all the risks in, in a dogfight, for instance? Is, is it possible, Gary? No, of course not. And I think, um, you know, we'll come on to some examples later. Some of it, it uh, survival is often just, you know, luck that the round hits a particular part of the aircraft rather than, say, the petrol tank. <laughs> you know, it's just if your number's up, as it were, your number's up. Now, we've got another example, uh, which we're going to follow through. Uh, on 6th of March, Richthofen attacks a patrol of... Now, this is my all-time favourite aircraft name. Not the Spitfire or the stupid Hurricane. The Sop with one-and-a-half strutter. <laughs> Look, I can... Uh, can you imagine the, the romance? The, the just wonderful. Now, this had been... This had, this had a forward-firing machine gun. It was a... a, 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 a a tractor aircraft, i.e. the propeller was in front. It, uh, it had been a good aircraft on the Somme, but it was now obsolescent or outdated. Uh, this patrol, uh, uh, the, 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 it's led by Lieutenant Alan Dorr of 43 Squadron. As an escort, it has some FE-8s, that's a single-seater uh, uh, pusher, uh, from 40 Squadron. And there's a sort of wild dogfight all over the skies. And this is Lieutenant Alan Dorr. In a few seconds, we were in a general melee of which I can only remember vague instance. As in a, it's in a vivid dream. Dived at one wicked-looking scout with a red fuselage. Dun, 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 dun. Gun jammed after a few shots. <laughs> I've confused recollections of seeing machines diving absolutely vertically, others stalling and spinning, the whole formation revolving and intermingling, scattering, converging like swallows on a wing. And then suddenly, Richtofen is hit. What? Rick, no, no, have I made a mistake? Looks at notes. No, Richtofen's hit just as he's about to administer the coup de grace to one of his enemies. Uh, so uh, you're going to be uh, Lieutenant Manfred von Richtofen uh, in extremis. He started shooting prematurely, which showed that he was nervous. So I said to myself, Gone shooting, you won't hit me. At the moment, I think I laughed out loud, but I soon got a lesson. In my mind's eye, I saw my enemy dropping. I approached my man up to within 50 yards. I fired some well-aimed shots and thought that I was bound to be successful. But suddenly, I heard a tremendous bang when I had scarcely fired 10 cartridges. And presently again, something hit my machine. It became clear to me that I had been hit, or rather my machine. At the same time, I noticed a fearful stench of petrol, and I observed that the motor was running slack. The Englishman noticed it too, for he started shooting with redoubled energy while I had to stop. Now here we have a thing of luck, because 
This could easily have been the end of Richthofen, very easily. He's surrounded by a spray of petrol, and uh, at any moment, his whole his whole aircraft could have just burst into flames. Now, Richthofen, he's got experience. He know he knows he's in danger. He's seen these symptoms of imminent uh, immolation a lot uh, in the air. So, so, so he reacts instant, instantly. What does he do? Instinctively, I switched off the engine. When one's petrol tank has been holed and when the infernal liquid is squirting around one's legs, the danger of fire is very great. One had in front of one an engine of more than 150 horsepower, which is red hot. If a single drop of petrol should fall on it, the whole machine would be in flames. I left in the air a thin white cloud. I knew its meaning from my enemies. Its appearance is the first sign of a coming explosion. I had no idea with what rapidity I went downwards. At any rate, the speed was so great that I could not put my head out of the machine without being pressed back by the rush of air. Now, it could still have been the end because he's still got to land. He's coming down almost vertically. He's got to flatten out, but he manages it and he makes a successful controlled uh, landing. Uh, This is, uh, I think, Richtofen, he's lucky to survive this. He'd been overconfident, hadn't he? Do you not think? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and do you think this was a valuable lesson to him? Yeah, I mean, it's just one more. He he adds to to the educational process that that's going to make him the most complete fighting ace of the First World War. He does learn from these experiences. Now, um, the rest of the pilots uh, in Jaster Eleven, uh, they're coming along. They're being taught, uh, uh, but they're, they're they're aware of the risks. That this, you know, you could hear it: the red fighter, the scarlet fighter. Everybody is starting to learn who Richtofen is, and they, by painting his aircraft all red, he's marking himself out to his enemies. So, what what do the the lads in his Jaster decide to do? Well, they, they, this is, inspires them, and they decide to join him in trailing their metaphorical coats across the uh, Arras skies, and they paint their aircraft red with different coloured trims to mark them all out. And, and this is the so a yellow trim or yeah, a green trim, and this, mostly red. And this is where the flying circus uh, comes from, isn't it? It is. It is also because they moved up and down the front, yeah, uh, especially in seventeen. But yeah, that's and exactly they lived in it. big tents. No, they didn't, Gary. Stop getting carried away with your excitement. <laughs> now, um, there's one. This is one of my all-time favourite things. And when I used to do this talk live, it was a bit I used to look forward to. The, 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 because on 13th of April, this is during bloody April. We're, we're fighting the Battle of Arras. We've got to get up in the skies. Um, and the, there's an utter disaster when 59 Squadron sends a patrol of six of the new uh, core um Artillery Observation Photographic Reconnaissance Machine, which is the RE-8, known as the Harry Tate for obvious reasons. Uh, and they're set out on a photographic reconnaissance. It's a new aircraft. They don't really, they're not that familiar with it. And it's off towards the Drocourt Quiant uh, switch line, which is unfortunately very near to I. Uh, the, the escort doesn't arrive. Uh-huh. I forgot, sorry. I forgot to send me an alarm. I'm sure nothing will go wrong. <laughs> what happens? Well, <laughs> Richtofen arrives with five of his scouts. The, the Jaster, and all six RE-8s are shot down. And afterwards, the survivors and the uh, the, the, uh, the Jaster pilots uh, meet in the officer's mess. And this quote is shows that Richtofen seems to lack a sense of humour uh, because it's just brilliant. Just listen to this. This is, this is just perfect. 
One of the Englishmen whom we had shot down and whom we had made prisoner was talking to us. Of course he inquired after the red aeroplane. It is not unknown even among the troops in the trenches, and is called by them Le Diable Rouge. In the squadron to which he belonged, there was a rumour that the red machine was occupied by a girl, a kind of Joan of Arc. He was intensely surprised when I assured him that the supposed girl was standing in front of him. He did not intend to make a joke. Oh, I think he did. <laughs> <laughs> I can just imagine, shot down, bit pissed off, you're having a nice drink, and there's this pompous German arse in front of you. <laughs> he just couldn't resist it, could he? Uh, also, the idea that British Tommies call anything Le Diable Rouge as opposed to Red Fokker. Yeah. Or oh, look, to... mate, there's that Diable Rouge up there again. <laughs> oh, dear. Now, um... Uh, by 29th of April, uh, 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 Rick shot down innumerable aircraft. <laughs> he, he got, he, well, he, he got, he, he shoots down four aircraft on that day alone. All right. Uh, and but he reached 52 kills. Quick word about kills. Most of them have been checked and found real, uh, but there'll never be a precision, an entire precision, because it's a difficult, it's difficult to assess kills. Do you think Rick is at his peak? Yeah, he is, but he's not a wild force like um, Albert Ball, for example, Captain Albert Ball, but he's a cool, calculating formation leader, and he's able to secure the maximum advantage from any situation, and he's got the moral strength to avoid engaging in battle if he felt the odds were stacked against him. Now, that's not cowardice, Pete. That's common sense, isn't it? Yeah, also... You know, it's pr- it's preserving. You mentioned earlier, it's not just the aircraft that are the precious resource; it's the pilots. So it's preserving the pilots as well. And war isn't a game, is it? It 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 it's not a game. And uh, yeah. Uh, now let, let's talk a bit. I mean, uh, why is Richter from one of the great pilots? Well, first he's got individual personal skills, so he can fly an aircraft accurately. He's a dead shot. He's the rest of it. He can do all that. He's a great formation leader tactically. Uh, and we'll talk about that in a bit more. But he's also a great teacher. And this, he, he's moulding the young pilots of Chester 11 into one of the most deadly collection of aces that would ever prey on the British. Um, within three months, the pilots of Chester 11 would eventually collectively make over 100 kills. There's great names like Alman Roder, uh, Kurt, Kurt von Wolf. Wolf. Uh, there's... Uh, there's oh, there's Manfred von Richthofen's brother, Lothar von Richthofen. This is amazing, uh, and this is from uh, this is from a, a starting point of zero. Yeah, and and and, and at the end of April, Richthofen goes on leave, uh, and so we're going to have to leave it. But he he leaves behind man his brother and the rest of these aces still cutting a swathe through the skies. It, it, he's done a brilliant job, not just as an individual pilot, a killing machine, uh, as a formation leader, but as a teacher. Now, he returns to action in June 1917, where he's flying over... Uh, well, remember, the air war is secondary to the ground war. Why do you think he's moved in June to the skies of Flanders? Because well, that's where the action is, in, in, yeah. in fact. Because it, the Battle of Messines and boiling up to uh, the Third Battle of Ypres. Uh, now, on this occasion, uh, let's talk with... A, a, the, it, now, I want to be clear. We're, during this talk, we three times talk about times when Rick Doffin is, uh, is in trouble. This is not the usual. We've, but the usual are the ones we've discussed where he shoots down people. But 
these are the exciting bits of his career that we've got to deal with. 6th of July, he attacks a flight of the obsolescent FE-2Ds. That's an FE-2B with a couple of letters later in the chain, isn't it? Uh, and uh, he, he ricked off and a couple of other pilots. And by this time, it's a Jagschwader, which is the flying circus proper. Uh, Jagschwader 1. And in the scrap that follows, uh, two of the... Uh, German albatross attack head-on an FE-2D pilot, uh, which is uh, FE-2D, which is piloted by Captain Donald Cunnell with the observer's second lieutenant, Albert Woodbridge. Now, I'm going to be Albert Woodbridge, and he tells what happens. I recall that there wasn't a thing on that machine that wasn't red. And God, how he could fly. I opened fire with the front Lewis, and so did Cannell with his side gun. Cannell held the FE to a course, and so did the pilot of the all-red scout. Gad! With our combined speeds, we must have been approaching each other at somewhere near 250 mile per hour. Thank God my Lewis didn't jam. I kept a steady stream of lead pouring into the nose of that machine. He was firing also. I could see my tracers splashing along the barrels of his spandaus. I knew the pilot was sitting behind them. His lead came whistling past my head and ripping holes in my bathtub. And something happened. We could hardly have been 20 yards apart when the albatross pointed her nose down suddenly. Zip! And she passed under us. We saw the all-red plane slip into a spin. It turned over and over and round and round. It was no manoeuvre. He was completely out of control. His motor was going full on. So I figured I'd at least wounded him. Now, I want to make one point before you leave your account uh, as acting as Richter. He's been overconfident again. How do you attack an FE-2B? Or D, same thing, same machine, basically, from behind, from behind and below. Road, yeah. Not from in front, where the, you're facing the observer with his Lewis gun. Anyway, you're going to leave your own account. Uh, t- tell us what you think of this, Richtofen. Suddenly, I received a blow on my head. I was hit. For a moment, my whole body was completely paralysed. My hands dropped to the side, and my legs dangled in the fuselage. The worst part was that the blow of the head affected my optic nerve and I was completely blinded. The machine plunged down. For a moment it flashed through my mind that this is the way it looks just before death. I doubted if the winds could stand the strain and I expected that they would break off at any moment. I did not lose consciousness immediately. I fought to regain control of my arms and legs so that I could grasp the control stick. I managed to shut off the fuel and the ignition. But would that alone help me? I had moved my eyes around and taken my goggles off, but it was impossible to see even the sun. I was completely blinded. The seconds were an eternity to me. I continued to fall. He's incredibly lucky because just by his own account, at the last second almost, he, he gets a partial vision and he manages to land safely and then he faints. It's been such a close, close escape. Overconfidence. It's come. It's just ridiculous. He, he's made a severe mistake. It's the first sign uh, of uh, of him breaking his own rules. Uh, what's happened to him? Well, what's happened to you as uh, Richtofen? Well, he suffered a, a, a fractured skull pay from the, a glancing bullet, and it had torn through to the bone. Yeah, and so he, he's rushed to hospital. It's quite a serious injury. Now. It appears at first that his recovery is swift because he's back in the air by 16th of of August. Uh, 16th of August. 16th of August. Hang on. He was only wounded on the 6th of July. So it's only about five or six weeks. It's ridiculous. But he's a changed man, isn't he? And he's suffering. What's he suffering from? And this will be no surprise with a fractured bloody skull. 
Well, he now gets uh, bothered in the air by intermittent headaches, dizziness and nausea, which is not good for a pilot. I bet he's also a bit more conscious of his own mortality. He's not quite so invincible, is he? And it uh, uh, may or may not have led to a bit more cause. Uh, Has his wound healed? Well, no. Has, is he... no, it couldn't possibly have done. It's not really healed. And he's persuaded to take an extensive period of leave between early September and November of 1917. Now, this marks that, that this incident is actually the end of the great Richthofen air period in one sense. There is a, a bit of a, a return to form, but his rate of kills falls sharply. Uh, he if you look at it, he shot down 57 aircraft in the 11 months leading to 6th of July, but he'd only shoot down another 23 in the nine months left of his career. And yes, you've got to take September and November, October, November out, but still that's a, a slowing down. After his long leave, he begins to recover. What's he still got in one sense? Well, he's still got the flying skills, Pete. He's, he's despite his, his earlier injury, he's still got the eyesight and the tactical awareness yeah, um, yep. he's got the gunnery ability, and underpinning all of this, he's got courage, Pete. He's also a superb teacher, and he's trying to inculcate the same merits in everybody who served with him. Now, there's a lot of parallels here, Pete, that strike me with some of the British pilots. Manic, for example, springs to mind. Particularly Manic, yeah. the British Richthofen. There's yeah. a lot of parallels here in how he's behaving, how he's t passing on his skill sets, but also how he's breaking his own rules now. That, that that well, that is the thing. He, he when it, when replacement pilots arrive, he'd he'd, he'd have them. They would just go around practice flights. He'd, he'd want it, monitor them. They'd almost learn to fly again. He'd practice the simple manoeuvres they need. He ricked off and constantly watching them, looking for strengths and weaknesses, removing those who weren't good enough, fitting them into the formation. And his ta his attack tactics are really simple, and that they are just a summation of Bolker's famous dicta. And this is where you're going to read them. Uh, this is. Is what uh, Rick often is recorded of saying. I dived out of the sun at him, taking into consideration the wind directions. Whoever reaches the enemy first has the privilege to shoot. The whole flight goes down with him. So-called cover at great altitude is a cloak for cowardice. If the first attacker has gun trouble, then it is the turn of the second or the third and so on. Two must never fire at the same time. Now, people are sometimes confused. Like, why can't you have two? For sure, concentration of fire. But if you're aiming at the same target, as you get nearer, you're likely to run into each other because it's a very small, your wings will hit. Uh, so it's, it's important. Um, now, Rick, as formation leader, Rick Doffin and Manick and McCudden and all these great aces was the cutting edge, the formation leader. Uh, and uh, what would happen? Uh, so, so, so he remains the protege of Bolker. What does he say? Uh, he sums it all up. In uh, uh, let's carry on. The subject aerial battle technique can be explained with one sentence, namely, I approach the enemy from behind to within fifty meters. I aim carefully, fire, and the enemy falls. These were the words used in explanation by Bolker when I asked him his trick. Now I know that this is the whole secret of aerial victory. One does not need to be a clever pilot or a crack shot. One only needs the courage to fly in close to the enemy before opening fire. Now, you could paraphrase that, Pete, as always from above, never from below, always from behind, or whatever the, the, the comment was. Uh, 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 Mannix. Uh, yeah. It's exactly uh, uh, the same. Uh, 
Uh, and you dive down, you, you, you unsuspecting enemy, either out of cloud, out of the sun, or from the wrong direction. Uh, you, you, you take maximum impact in your dive with your best shot, i.e. Richtofen first. And then, then Richtofen would fly higher and watch the thing, watching for easy kills. Um, uh, and, and, and generally also lead, what you're doing is monitoring the situation. He's leading. Um, uh, it, 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 he, he's acting as a focus to reassemble a formation and assess, assess what's going on, as a leader should, of course. Now, um, uh, back at the airfield, Richtofen would analyse any, any incident, any conflict, uh, and debrief and give practical tutorial advice on scout tactics, if you like. But what do you think his influence is generally amongst German pilots at this time? Well, basically, he's brought up a whole generation of, of German aces, hasn't he? Under the, this regime of comradeship tempered by strict discipline. You know, his, his influence increasingly all pervasive right across the German Air Force on the Western Front. Do you, do you think perhaps he should have been withdrawn from the front and used as a, a, a figurehead and trainer? Or Yeah, again, there's a parallel with Manuk here, isn't there? That, that Why weren't they removed from the, the front, as it were, and used to inspire others on the home front? But um, they, they don't want that themselves, do they, Pete? Not really. And as 1918, you've got the great German spring offensives, haven't you? Uh, and uh, is 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 uh, often the man to stand on the sidelines during the greatest fight of his country? And you've got a most wonderful quote, which I think sums it up. I should consider myself a despicable creature if now that I am loaded with fame and decorations, I should consent to live on as the pensioner of my own dignity and to preserve my valuable life for the nation while every poor fellow in the trenches who is doing his duty just as much as I am has to stick it out. Now, I think this is entirely admirable, uh, and I admire it. He could have escaped, and, and he could have not flown. He could have carried on commanding. Uh, he was a Rittmeister. He could have carried on commanding Jaguar one without flying. And when Goring takes over, Hermann Goring, who uh, you may have heard of, he doesn't fly. Uh, but Richtofen does. By this time, he's what's he flying? Well, he's flying the <laughs> the Fokker triplane. Now you hear a lot about the Fokker triplane. It's very manoeuvrable, but it's not exceptional. It's based, funnily enough, on the Sopwith triplane from 1917. It's not a great aircraft. He should have been in a Fokker D7, I think. Uh, whatever he should have been, he should have been in a Fokker. <laughs> <laughs> During that spring, he's soon in the thick of action, isn't he? Um, and do you know what? By this time, he seems to be getting back on top form, doesn't he? Do you not think? Um, but but one sign of where air fighting is in the whole scheme of things is is it's very telling. What does he have to do during the climax of the battle? Uh, what does he have to do? Well, even he's obliged to join in the highly dangerous strafing of the British retreating columns, which is a useful reminder at this point that the ground war's king. In other words, even your greatest aces have to come down and machine gun British Tommies, British columns, because that's where the real war is. No disrespect to air fighters, but they're in the air for the men on the ground. Why did you have me say the word strafing? Because I, I, I say strafing, and I'm not sure which is right. Now, April 1918, Richtofen seems to be on top irresistible form, and his efforts peak on the 20th of April. Well, they would do. Uh, he claims his 79th and 80th victories. Uh, now, what was that song go? 
Yes. Um, he seems to be at the peak of his powers, uh, but perhaps he should have gone somewhere else. Uh, but he's determined to fight on. He, he's, do you think he's got target fixation at all? Uh, that's what happens to people like Manic, McCudden, Ball. Yeah, he must have been looking at 100 at this point, Pete, mustn't he? They never rest. Yeah, whatever. Well, what's the next day after the 20th of April? Uh, it's the 21st of April, Pete. Ooh, I wonder what's going to happen. 21st of April, 1918. Well, that day, three flights have stopped with camels from 209 Squadron. Notice there's many more aircraft in the air in 1918. It's packed with aircraft. They're carrying out an offensive patrol over the Somme, and they got into a dogfight with Jagswada 1. Now, amongst them was Lieutenant Wilfred May. He's an inexperienced pilot, and he'd been firmly ordered to stay out of dogfights. But he was sucked into the fray. <laughs> uh, to him, he doesn't know what's going on. It's just a blur. <laughs> and he's he's a next to useless mate. Right? In fact, he's not next to useless. I want to see if you can spot where he goes wrong with his tactics and what his mates must have thought of him. He's Canadian, but I can't do a Canadian accent, so I think I'll use just an idiot's voice. Now, how do you speak? Um, <laughs> anyway, here we go. Lieutenant Wilfred May, 209 Squadron. The enemy's aircraft were coming at me from all sides. I, I seemed to be missing some of them by inches. There seemed to be so many of them. The best thing I thought to do was to get into a tight vertical turn, hold my guns open and spray as many as I could. So he's spinning around just shooting. Can you imagine his reds going, what bastard shooting at me? Oh, it's him. The fight was at very close quarters. There seemed to be dozens of machines around me. Through lack of experience, I held my guns open too long. One jammed, and then the other. I, I couldn't clear them, so I spun out of the mess and headed west into the sun for home. After I levelled off, I looked round, but nobody was following me. I was patting myself on the back, feeling pretty good getting out of that scrape. This wasn't to last long, and the first thing I knew, I was being fired on from the rear. I, I couldn't fight back, fortunately, so all I could do was try and dodge the attacker. I noticed... It was a red triplane. But if I'd realised it was Richthofen, I would probably have passed out on the spot. Well, that is an entirely honest account. I love it. He's desperately trying to get home. He's trying to shake off this red triplane. Are you not going to give us Richthofen's comments on this attack, Gary? No, not at the moment. You seem to be strangely silent in your Richtofen voice. Anyway, his predicament is seen by his fellow Canadian, uh, and this is uh, Captain Roy Brown. Uh, he's a man who, you always have to mention, he's got stomach ulcers. I have no idea why, but he's suffering from combat stress. He's got stomach ulcers. He sees his mate on, in trouble, and he flies down. He's got nine victories to his credit. And you're going to be Captain Roy Brown, 209 Squadron. Dived on pure red triplane, which was firing on Lieutenant May. I got a long burst into him, and he went down vertical and was observed to crash by Lieutenant Mellish and Lieutenant May. Now, that's the end of the action for Brown. That's part of a, a, a combat report. He had no idea it was Rick Duffin, and he flies off to join up with Mellish and May uh, before returning to the airfield. However, it's generally accepted that whatever Brown thought was happening... Richtofen carried on pursuing May for some time after this incident. And this is Le <clears throat> Lieutenant May, who's getting increasingly desperate. 
I kept on dodging and spinning, I, I imagine for about 12,000 feet, until I ran out of sky and had to hedgehop over the ground. Richtofen was firing at me continually. The, the only thing that saved me was my poor flying. I didn't know what I was doing myself. I don't suppose that Richtofen could figure out what I was going to do. I love that. What, what's Richtofen doing? What, what, fly, following down to hedgehog. He's breaking his own rules, isn't he? Behind the, well behind British lines, unsupported on his own. The next person to evolve is Cedric, uh, Sergeant Cedric Popkin. He's on the ground. Now, as they're flying along, imagine two planes flying along. He's on the left-hand side of Rick Doffin's Fokker. You're going to be Sergeant Cedric Popkin, 24th Australian Machine Gun Company. I opened fire immediately. The British plane left my sights and followed the Fritz around. It would be perhaps hundreds to 120 yards in front of me when I opened fire in about 200 to 400 feet in the air. It would be below the top of the ridge, which is about 500 to 600 feet high. Oh, Lieutenant May's got no idea what's happening. He's flying along, dodging trees, ridges, and he's just trying to get away. Uh, you know, it, it's all he's trying to do. Richtofen climbs over the ridge. It's, uh, uh, he, he's in close pursuit. And then there's another claimant uh, for, for the honour of shooting him down. And this is, uh, is uh, Gunner Robert Bouie, 53rd Battery, 14th Australian Field Artillery Brigade. And he's in a Lewis machine gun post on the high ground of Mor- Moreland Court Ridge. Now, I want you to listen to this, Gary, and see what you think of the, this chap's truthfulness. This is what he says. At, at 200 yards with the peep shite directly on uh, Richtofen's body, I began firing with steady bursts. I knew that the bullets were striking the right side and front of the machine, for I clearly saw fragments flying. Still, Richtofen came on, firing at Lieutenant May with both barrels blazing. Then, just before my last shots finished at a range of 40 yards, Richtofen's gun stopped abruptly. The thought flashed through my mind. Ah, oh, him! Now, what do you think about that? Well, he's got very good eyesight to be able to see all of that while he's uh, in the midst of a, an action, and he's firing head-on to the machines. Yeah, and 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 the, the Richtofen's going at a hundred odd miles an hour, which is basically this takes place in. Vroom! It's bollocks. It's bollocks. But anyway, he is immediately in front of Richtofen, so the bullets would hit the front of the the cockpit. We then Richtofen at this point turns sharply back. Reversing his course and heading back to the German lines. A bit late, isn't it? And then Popkin has a second burst at him. Now, this time, if you think about it, he's on uh, the right-hand side. He was on the left-hand side, but now he's reversing. He's going back. He's on the right-hand side. Uh, what are you going to say this time, Popkin? I hadn't fired a second time at the peak of his turn. I don't think I was firing so long the second time as the first. I would be firing about half to three-quarters a minute each time. Yeah, and then the red triplane crashes into the ground near a brick uh, brick kiln. So to sum up, Richtofen was shot down by Brown from behind, by Popkin from below and on the left, by Bui from straight ahead and slightly below, or Popkin second burst from below on the right. Uh, or who else could have shot him down uh, with a three o three bullet? Any, is, any uh, British or Australian soldier on the ground? Because what bullet is used by the Lewis gun, the Vickers gun, and everything else? 303. Yeah. Now, Richtofen was definitely dead, and he seemed most believe he was dead before the triplane hit the ground. Uh, uh, there's, there's always stories that he has last word, but 
uh, I think he was dead. There's no autopsy. Uh, how, how do they how do they check for uh, for how he died? T- take me through the detailed uh, medical examination. Well, they just sort of put a bit of wire in to, to probe the passage of the bullet and have a guess at the sort of track that it follows. It's a coat hanger, straightened out coat hanger. And that's all they do. So let's let's make it quite clear. The medical examination is crap. Apparently, from that, it shows the bullet entered from slightly behind and it goes through the right armpit, i.e. from the right, uh, and, uh, and it comes through the chest by the left nipple. And it's only now, one I round. He's only hit by one just round. one hit, which uh, contradicts Bui, who reckons he's hit him loads of times. Now, I want you to think... Is there anything in your body, Gary, of any importance between the right armpit and the left nipple? Um, yes, uh, but it, 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 it's almost a medical question. Could Richtofen, with a bullet through the right armpit and through to the left nipple, have lived for 60 seconds as he travelled some 1,500 yards from the point where Captain Roy Brown last attacked him to where he pulled up and crashed? Now, some say he could, some say he couldn't. I, I don't know, and I don't think... What what's the point of idiots like us commenting? We know no, nothing about medicine. I mean, I, I dare say it's not impossible, but you're referring to the fact that it's gone through a vital organ. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what... I mean, that's the level of my medical organ, is, my knowledge. There's definitely something important inside your chest. Um, now, the Popkins claim... Let, let's go through them. So, Brown... Well, medically difficult. Very... He could have hit him from behind and on the right because their the, the airplanes are jinking about. He could have. Popkin... From the left, could the bullet have circled round and hit him in the right armpit, Gary? No, it's only it's only the second occasion. Yeah, so not the first time. What about Robert Bui? Well, no, it, it, <laughs> we said while we were we were talking, he's directly in front, and the machine's moving at 100 mile an hour. Now he could have done it, I suppose, when the machine turned round, but he says he did it from the front. He also says that he saw the body and it was riddled with bullets. He's a fucking... He's a liar. He's wrong. He's a liar. All right. So what about Popkin the second round, the second burst? That. Well, yeah, a lot of people say that it must have been Sergeant Popkin after he turned back and therefore presented his right-hand side to him. But it's a remarkable deflection shot at the, the range that he's talking about. Now, explain to the punters what a deflection shot is. That, that well, you means... can't fire directly at the target because it's moving, and, and as, again, you mentioned it's moving at 100 mile per hour right across his line of sight. And, and if he did it, arguably it's accidental. It would be a hell of a shot. He'd have to shoot well ahead. He would. Uh, um, so I don't think anyone Anyone will ever know who shot down Richtoff. And I can't be bothered with it myself. Um, he was definitely have, dead. He was definitely dead, and that's it. I, I have a personal belief. Uh, as you know, Gary, I'm from many places, but one of the places I'm from is Durham. And I've always believed that it was a stray member of the Durham Light Infantry strolling across the battlefield, and he looks up and he says these immortal words before doing the deed. What are those immortal words, Gary? Why are you, red fucker? And, and and do you know what? That's as likely as other other ideas. I can't and, and believe we... that you've managed to manoeuvre that into a podcast about red 
uh, about Rick Toffin. What is Gary, don't don't get sucked into the irrelevancies. What is the real point of all this? What had Rick Toffin done? Well, again, we mentioned it earlier, and it seems to be a theme with some of the the higher scoring aces. He'd started to make a catalogue of errors that were in direct contradiction of his own dicta by this stage. It's not just Bolker's dicta by this stage. It's his own dicta. And it was suicidal to pursue a scout so low down over the British lines. Well over. Yeah, with 40 machine guns and a heavy fire from the ground and under attack from an unseen scout on his towel. Oh, you know, he doesn't know who that is. And as it happens, it was an ace in his own right. So in in one sense, what we're saying is... Um, we don't don't know where the bullet came from, but the bullet was coming from somewhere. Uh, it was unlikely he'd get out of that alive. Um, now, what what happens after 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 the thing? Well, Rick Rick Toffen, he was buried with all honours at Burton Court, I think. And the men of the RAF, because it's the RAF by this time, uh, uh, were very ambivalent about Rick Toffen. And many have sought to decry his achievement, and that ch- tradition lingers on uh, long after the war. In fact, it still goes on today. Uh, they, 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 they consider there's nothing about Rick Toffin that's worthy of respect. I, I, and, and one popular viewpoint, it's spouted by idiots, and it still persists amongst the terminally stupid uh, to this day on, on forums and things on, on the internet. This is uh, Second Lieutenant Walter Woods of 29 Squadron. And he, this lad just gets everything wrong. This Count Richthofen you mentioned, Dad, is nothing to worry about. He will soon be brought down. Believe me, every machine of ours he has brought down has been a slow, old artillery observation machine, practically incapable of defending itself. And I saw the same thing on a on a on a, a Facebook page. Exactly the same slurs spouted out by an idiot recently. Um, uh, there's endless accusations. He's a murderer. He preys on defenceless prey. He's evil. Uh, his victories are spoon fed to him by his henchmen. I think it's more go go uh, goring. Um, it it, it I, I mean, one idiot on Facebook actually suggested he wasn't a brave man. Do you think Richthofen was a brave man? Anyone who got into them machines at that time was brave just to get up there. Um, no, and he was doing his duty for his country as he saw it in the best way that he could. Yeah, uh, about uh, the the claims, he, he claimed eighty kills. Uh, there's not much doubt about nearly all of these. And I don't say this is... I haven't done the work. Into Modern researchers, people like Trevor Trevor Henshaw, people like... Uh, oh, God, I can't remember names. There's loads of them. They have gone through and they've assigned names and aircraft to almost every one of his claimed victories or kills, however you like. He stands acclaimed as, as, a, as a, an ultimate scout pilot, as a formation leader par excellence. What's his job, Gary? Sum up his job. Well, basically, he's got to sweep the Allied observation aircraft from the skies, and he did it to the very best of his ability. We keep coming back to what's the role of the aircraft, the primary role. And he was there to deny the aircraft that opportunity. Now, why are the Army cooperation uh, so important to the the, the ground war? Well, (laughs) because without them, the, the casualties on the ground are going to increase. We've mentioned... You know, before that, uh, the 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 
The joint between the Royal Flying Corps, RAF, and the artillery is the primary relationship here um, because it saves lives on the ground. And, and kills Germans. Kills Germans, absolutely. So they, they are the ultimate enemy, and that's why Richthofen seeks them out. The BE-2C, the RE-8, they are the ultimate killing machines, not because of themselves, but because of the wireless and the observer and the contact with the real killing machine, the Royal Artillery. That's why Richthofen seeks them out. Did you think it's because he, he wants a gruesome souvenir? He collected souvenirs from the aircraft, or, or he especially struck silver hunting cups that he had before they began to run out of silver. Do you think that's why they were? No. It's because they the real enemy, isn't he? Do you think? Do you think he's a cold-hearted murderer, Gary? No, he's a man fighting to the very best of his considerable abilities in the cause of his country, as I mentioned earlier. And uh, like most of the German aces, and in fact quite a lot of the Allied aces, he pays the inevitable penalty of fighting against the odds in crowded skies. And I think we we owe him our respect, and people shouldn't just trash his reputation just on uh, without thinking about what a, what a what a wonderful pilot he was. He was a killing machine, uh, but he was killing in the cause of his country, and we have to respect what he did. Uh, I, I've always had a lot of time for for Richthofen, uh, and do you know something? Uh, just to change the mood, he was gorgeous. He was very pretty. Thank you, Gary. Thanks for joining me today. And, and I'm, I'm grateful for you for letting me join you. Cheers, Pete. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH, or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?